my sweetheart church, it is good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know, and probably nobody, but three weeks ago tomorrow, um, I thought I was having a stroke. I, my right side of my face was drooping. I had some speech impairment. My eye wouldn't close. I was drooling like a baby. So I went into the ER. Good news is I didn't have a stroke. My brain is fine. Uh, I had Bell's palsy, which has all of those same symptoms, I'm sure. Many of you are aware of it. So they put me on meds. They said, you just now got to have some rest. And so over the weeks of meds and rest and all of your prayers, uh, I think you can tell that I'm uh, looking a little different than what you might have seen uh, up there. I think I'm probably 90%. I'm not very much more disfigured than I've ever been uh, before. <laughs> so um, I, I just... I. <laughs> I just wanted to thank you for all of the care that you have shown to me and to Cindy, the, the prayers, the meals, the offer of assistance, the wonderful and plentiful uh, get well cards that, that you all sent to me. I'm just very, very grateful. And, um, and to those of you who did not write a get well card to your stricken pastor, I would just say, what's your problem? All right, all right. We need, I think you need a break already. <laughs> Can we pray for you? Would that be all right? Okay, Father, thank you for Pastor Mark. Thank you for uh, bringing him back to us. And uh, we pray for complete and total healing for his face. And Lord, that you would restore him to full health. And we look forward to hearing him share your word once again for us next Sunday. Thank you that you have uh, brought him back and uh, provided a way for him to be able to do that through your healing hand at work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He cut me off before I said what I wanted to say. <laughs> I, thought I, you, what, I thought you were going a little, yeah. No, no, no. Okay. What I wanted to say was, uh, I wanted to say thank you particularly to our great staff and especially to Pastor Ellis, who stepped up and said, I got this. I'll preach whatever you need. I got this. So we are very, very blessed, aren't we? Well, let me join my welcome to the others that you've heard. Welcome to Youth Sunday at Chapel Hill. Thank you guys for being here, for being behind our youth. They are the church of today, not the church of tomorrow. And thank you for encouraging them and supporting them in that. We're continuing our series through Luke's Gospel, his biographical account of the life of Jesus. And last week, we saw one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter, come to a revelation of Jesus as the Christ of God, God's chosen king for his people. And this week, Peter, along with two brothers, James and John, they're going to come to a revelation of Jesus that surpasses even that. Several months ago, we got a puppy. Her name is, yeah, cue the R's. I knew this was, this was an easy win right here. Just put the photo up on the screen. Her name's Windsor. She's a mini golden doodle. She's adorable. Our family love her. But even at six months old, she still cannot sleep through the night. Oh, my word. 4 a.m. this week, 4.45, 5 a.m., and I'm the one who has to get up and take her out to go potty and then put her back to bed. And, you know, it's like at that time, it's just late enough that, like, you really can't get back to sleep before your alarm goes off. And, you know, it's got to the point now, though, where when I hear her bark, I'm, like, drifting in and out of sleep, and I'm going, is this a dog in my dream that I'm hearing? Is this reality? What's going on? <laughs> This morning, in the passage we're going to be looking at, we're going to see Peter, James, and John drifting in and out of sleep. But they're not going to be awoken by a barking puppy. They're going to be awoken by something truly 
magnificent, the glory of God. And I hope that this message will encourage us and awaken us to God's glory and challenge us that we might be used by God to awaken our nation to God's glory. We pick things up where we left off last week. We're in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's a TV show called Undercover Boss. Any of you heard of Undercover Boss? It's where CEOs of large corporations disguise themselves and go to work alongside some of their lowest level employees. And the most fascinating part, I think, of every episode is when the CEO reveals their true identity to their employees. What we just read is that moment for Jesus and his three friends. This is the moment when Jesus, who to this point has been in disguise, so to speak, undercover, reveals his true identity to his closest followers. Jesus begins by inviting these three men to uh, go up on a mountain to pray. This was likely Mount Hermon, which today sits on the border between Syria and Lebanon. And this is a pretty strenuous hike. It's more than 9,000 feet of elevation at the top. And sadly, as we'll see in a moment, this hike was quite tiring for the disciples. So much so that they fell asleep during the prayer meeting that Jesus held at the top. Obviously not the first nor the last group of disciples to fall asleep in a prayer meeting. As they were praying, though, Jesus' face began to change. And his clothing became dazzling white. Now, the original Greek for that word dazzling is exastraptone, which literally means it was whiter than clothes washed with OxyClean White Revive laundry whitener. (laughs) Actually, I'm lying to you there. It doesn't mean that. Uh, It does mean that his clothes were gleaming like lightning. They were dazzlingly bright. And Jesus was in this moment what we call transfigured. That is, he was transformed into something more glorious than his prior state. And what was really going on here was that undercover boss moment. Jesus' true identity was being revealed. Jesus was no mere human. He was God in human flesh. But Jesus wasn't alone in this moment. Alongside him are two other men who appear in glory. And these two men represent the prophetic tradition that had come before Jesus. All the prophecies that have been spoken about him, declaring that that one day God would come to his people and usher in an unprecedented new era of his rule and reign. And these two men were Moses and Elijah, 
two of Israel's greatest prophets from the past. Moses, who led God's people out of slavery in what's called the Exodus, and met with God face to face on another mountain, receiving God's law from him. And Elijah, who also met with God on another mountain and performed many miracles before finally ascending to heaven in a fiery chariot. And Luke records that these three men Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were having a conversation about Jesus' departure. But in truth, as the footnote in the ESV Bibles that are in our pews points out, the word for departure is actually exodus. Now, the exodus, as I just mentioned, was that moment when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, brought down 10 plagues on the Egyptians, parted the Red Seas, the Israelites walked through, and then he brought the Red Sea back down on top of the Egyptian chariots that were coming after them. This moment, the exodus, was the most foundational moment for God's people's redemption and formation. And yet Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are not talking about that exodus. They are talking about Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. In other words, what Luke is trying to tell us is that Jesus' death and resurrection, which was about to take place, is set to be just as, if not more so, foundational to the people of God's redemption and formation as the original exodus itself. And at this moment, as this conversation is going on, Peter, James, and John begin to stir from their post-hike nap. And likely they're a little bit shocked at what they see in front of them. Here's how Luke records what happens next. Verse 32, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I'll be honest, I've always thought of Peter's statement uh, as a little bit stupid, right? He's he's been asleep, he wakes up, he's, he's kind of tired and groggy, wondering what on earth is going on, and then he says some words without really thinking about them, like, oh Jesus, it's so great to be here, let's set up camp. And this line of thinking is compounded by Luke's side comment where he tells us that Peter didn't know what he said. But this week, as I read former Whitworth professor James Edwards' commentary on this passage, I became convinced that although Peter is clueless, as the passage tells us, he's not stupid. He's actually speaking the truth. And to understand that, you need to know something about the tabernacle. Now, immediately after the exodus, when Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, God met with Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him instructions for how his people were to live. And one of those instructions was how they were to build a tent or a tabernacle in which God was going to dwell with his people. 
The tabernacle was to be in the center of the people's camp throughout their wanderings in the wilderness. And once it was completed, God's presence descended, as you can see in that picture. Put that back up once again. God's presence descended on the tabernacle in the form of a cloud. Can you see that? As it's recorded in the book of Exodus, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud was the manifest presence of God's glory. Now, unfortunately for God's people living at the time of Jesus, God's glory didn't dwell any longer in the tabernacle or in the permanent structure which replaced it, the temple. The cloud was no longer present in Israel's midst. In fact, God's people longed for its return. And so when Peter awakens on the top of the mountain, to seeing God's glory having descended, he says the first thing that rightly comes to his head. We should build a tent or a tabernacle to house God's glory. And then as if to affirm the truth of Peter's statement, a cloud descends Upon them. Let's keep reading verse 34. And as he, Peter, was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. To the people of Israel, the cloud was God's manifest presence. It was the pillar of cloud that led the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. It was the cloud that descended on the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then when it was time for them to break camp and move on, the cloud lifted and they followed the cloud to where the new camp was to be. And then when Solomon dedicated the temple, that permanent structure that replaced the tabernacle, the cloud of the glory of God filled the temple. The cloud is the manifest presence of God. It is the glory of God. And when that cloud, God's presence, descends on these men on that mountain with Jesus, a voice comes from the cloud, the voice of God. And this voice proclaims that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had prophesied was to come. The voice says first, this is my son, Jesus is the heir to the throne of God. He is the king. The voice continues, my chosen one. Jesus is God's anointed one, the Christ, the servant of the Lord who would lay down his life for his people. And third, the voice says, listen to him. Jesus is the word of God who prophesies God's truth to us. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God in all his glory. And then the voice stops. The cloud disappears. Moses and Elijah disappear. And Jesus is all alone. It's just Jesus, Peter, John, and James on top of a mountain, standing in silence, having witnessed the clearest revelation of God in hundreds 
of years. And at this point, the story and the point that it's trying to teach us becomes clear. Jesus is the place where God's glory fully dwells. In other words, Jesus is now the tabernacle. Jesus is now the temple. He is the place where God's glory is fully present. God doesn't reside in a building anymore or in a canvas structure. He resides in a person. And these three men have seen the reality of that. This man, Jesus, is God himself in the flesh. The very glory of God is present in the person of Jesus. And that same Jesus who was present to his disciples 2,000 years ago is present to us today. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The curtain was what separated the people of God from God's glory, which dwelt in the holy of holies. And in that moment, through Jesus's death, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. It was God who tore it from the top. And God's glory moved out of that one location. And through the death of Jesus, God's glory now rests upon his people. Peter later wrote, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, the church. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes elsewhere. We, his church, are the place where God's glory now dwells. He is in our midst. But here's what I'm afraid of. Just like the disciples on that mountain, we're sleeping through it. I mentioned earlier that I've been exhausted by the puppy waking me up. Well, I've been so exhausted that one day this week I was reading my Bible and I woke up. Now, I know that's normal for a lot of you, that you fall asleep when you read the Bible. I get it. But not for me. I'm a pastor. I love this thing. I love reading it. I don't fall asleep reading it. It brings life to me. And yet here I am in the very presence of God's Word, trying to meet with God. I'm dozing off and waking up, just like those disciples on top of that mountain, drifting off as they're spending time with the Lord. I'd done the same thing. And just like them, I needed to wake up. Take a look again at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory. It wasn't until that moment when they fully awoke that they saw the glory of Jesus. And here's what I'm wondering, church. Are we fully awake to see God's glory? Or are we dozing off, just like the disciples? Are we fully present to God? Or are we half asleep? 
when he's trying to reveal himself to us. Three weeks ago, Pastor Mark called us to pray for revival. Do you know what the very first American revival was called? The Great Awakening. Yes, literally, it was a time when God's people were awakened from slumber and were brought back to life in their thousands. Through preachers such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, the Lord awakened the American colonies in the early 18th century from their slumber. Now, according to Wesley Duell in his book, Revival Fire, I, I'd highly recommend this book if you want to read about the history of revivals. According to Duell, the crowds at that time were phenomenal. He records one time where George Whitfield was preaching on Boston Common and 15,000 people showed up at a time when Boston's population was 17,000 people. Two Boston ministers later testified that during that week, more people came to see them for prayer than had done in the prior 24 years. In the time in which the Great Awakening swept through the city of Boston, church services overflowed, 30 religious societies were started, and nearly every night, ministers were holding meetings in private homes for 18 months. And that's just in Boston alone. The Great Awakening swept across the entire American colonies and my homeland of England. In fact, many people credit the move of God in the Great Awakening for why this nation had a Christian foundation. It was because God swept through this nation in the early 18th century. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this country needs another Great Awakening. We need the people of this nation to awaken to the glory of God. And we need the church, us, to arise from our slumber, to repent of our sin, and to call out to the Lord in prayer. You know, I was struck as I reread Duell's book this week that the description of society prior to the Great Awakening is so close to the description of society today here in the West. Listen, this is a quote. It's going to go on the screen. This is what he wrote. In the early 18th century, the authority of the Bible was shaken. Spiritual indifference and skepticism abounded, and liberty degenerated into license. Religion was emptied of its spirituality and power. Viewed with contempt, it became at most a code of ethics. The masses were largely untouched by the church. There were godly, faithful ministers here and there, but many clergy were mere figureheads who did not teach and actually opposed the doctrine of salvation by faith. In higher circles of society, people laughed at the mention of religion. Most prominent statesmen were unbelievers and known for grossly immoral lives, drunkenness and foul language. Marriage was sneered at. End quote. Does that sound familiar or what? So what happened? How did God awaken his people? How did he bring revival to a nation? Well, many people believe that it can be traced back to one group of men from the University of Oxford. Two brothers and one other. Sound familiar? Two brothers, John 
and Charles Wesley, and one 18-year-old man, George Whitfield, no older than the students who are leading us in worship. These three men, the Wesleys and George Whitfield, they formed a club called the Holy Club. They sought to pursue holiness above all other things. And on New Year's Day, 1739, these three men were gathered with about 60 others in London at at Fetters Lane for what they called a love feast. And as Wesley recorded in his own words, this happened. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground, overcome by the power of God. As soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of His majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. What a moment. And God went on to use that moment of prayer to spark something. It was as a main result of the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield that revival began to blow in and across England. And through them, as they traveled to the United States, God used them to bring about this great awakening that transformed this nation. And it came at a time of total and complete moral and religious decline. And it came through a group of people seeking God crying out to him. Two brothers and one other who saw the glory of God and were transformed by it. And God went on to use them to transform nations. It began with God awakening them to his glory before he awakened others through them. It starts with us. It starts with the church. It starts with us awakening from slumber and seeing the glory of God. And God can do the same thing that he did in the early 18th century today in the early 21st century. He could change a whole nation if his people would awaken to his presence and seek his face. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the Lord appeared to King Solomon after he had built the temple, after he dedicated it, after he would offered innumerable sacrifices, and the cloud of God's glory filled the temple. And the Lord spoke these words to Solomon. He said, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I wonder if God might be saying the same thing to his church today. If we, his people, who have been called by his name, the name of Jesus, would humble ourselves, casting off all pride all self-reliance, and would fall on our knees in prayer, seeking God's face. And we would repent of our sin, of our wickedness, of our hardness of heart, 
of our slumber. If we will do those things, then God will hear us from heaven. He will forgive us our sin, and He will heal this land. But it starts with us, church. When they became fully awake, they saw His glory. We must awaken from our slumber. We must fall on our knees in prayer. We must repent of our sin. We must seek His face. So we're going to do that now. We're going to pray. Our youth are going to lead us in a, another song for us to reflect during that time. And then we're going to gather tonight, right here, 6.30. And we're going to pray that God would bring revival to us and to this nation. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we are sorry that we have been sleeping through this life. We are sorry that we have been sleeping through your glory in our midst. We are sorry that we have relied upon ourselves instead of upon you. Sorry that we've looked to the things of this world to fulfill only the desires that you can fulfill. Will we repent? Holy Spirit, come and awaken us that we may see your glory in our midst. We seek you. We choose to pursue holiness being set apart for the glory of God. And we ask, Lord, that as we do, that you would hear our prayer, that you would forgive us of our sin, that you would transform us, and in that process, you would use us to transform this nation. Lord, awaken your church. Awaken your people that revival might come in this nation. That is our prayer. I invite you to continue in this posture of of prayer and reflection as we hear our students lead us in a song based upon this very passage of Scripture.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.